Hello, hello everyone. This is Kim C and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast where one woman explores the underrated recipes in Stephen King's kitchen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to part two of the novella collection, 1982's Different Seasons. If you missed part one, please feel free to jump back to last week's episode if you would like to listen to my coverage on the stellar, perfect, genius Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and the really psychologically complex, gritty, grimy, bloody, a one-time read for me me apt pupil. (laughs) But today we're finishing up different seasons by talking about the body, our fall from grace autumnal chunk of this novel, as well as winter's tale with the final story of the breathing method. So in this episode, I'm going to dive in with what I liked about both stories, what was unique, what I enjoyed. I'm also going to share a little bit of my favorite chunks of beautiful writing to whet your appetite, and then I'll go forth into questions and areas that may have fallen a little flat, could have been revised, edited, and then we'll conclude after both tales have been explored by looking at the collection of different seasons as a whole and how it's working and which story gets the top spot as my favorite one in the bunch. With these tales, I'm going to reveal a few character arcs, but I'm going to dance around big spoilers. However, be warned, we might get a little muddy with spoilers. Not super duper muddy, but we are going to be outside in the elements for sure, so whatever whites you got on will get a little bit soiled, because I want to talk about characters with you, and that oftentimes bleeds into plot outcomes when we have shorter narratives. So these final moments, specifically concerning the body, we have such a tragically beautiful conclusion that uh, there might be some spoilers. In addition to the breathing method, wow folks, we've got some old school macabre in that one and I'm going to do my ultimate best to skirt around it, but I may just decide to throw my hands up and dive in with the whole enchilada concerning both stories as they're slightly challenging to tiptoe around. So be forewarned, I will do my best, but no hard promises that I'm gonna stay away from any ruined endings for you. So just a heads up. I hope you'll stay with me as we cover these stories today, but if you are dead set in keeping them spoiler free, uh, let's press pause on this one and you can come back in a little while and uh, learn about the outcomes with me when you're ready because, well, to begin, uh, let's see. Last time we spoke, I was feeling like I needed to take a hot bath in bleach after reading Apt Pupil, Uh, but instead I kept going one foot in front of the other and went on a weekend adventure with four 12-year-old young men from Maine who were in search of checking out a dead body over Labor Day weekend, and I must say, friends, that perked me right up. What a treasure. What a rich, rich, rich novella. 
thick with symbolism, heavy with adolescent emotion and pain and fear. And guys, this is King at level 10 greatness. If you are new to Stephen King's writing or it's been a while since you've read him, Oh my gosh, guys, this story. This is King with a royal flush and all the aces. This is strong, in all caps, strong writing, guys, and gorgeous narration that is another brick of gold, only this time, the power in this narrative is the lived-in memory, this very real young narrator writing as a grown man about this weekend with his childhood friends that in a way changed them all. And let me tell you folks, it was exactly what the doctor ordered to kind of rinse off some of the very disturbing leftover vibes from Abt Pupil. It definitely put me back on the horse, trekking into gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous storytelling and wonderful, pretty much unforgettable characters. So I think I mentioned it in last week's episode, but this is my very first time reading different seasons, and every story in here, it's just my first time with all of them, especially not only reading the body, but it was my very first time watching the 1986 film adaptation, Stand By Me, in its entirety. Over the years, I had seen chunks of it over time, and I knew it was a really powerful story, uh, very Sandlot-esque, if you guys remember the Sandlot, although I think that was a different demographic. That one was a 90s young adult film about kids in, specifically young boys, in 1962 playing baseball all summer long. And I knew Stand By Me was similar to the Sandlot, but was never able to view the whole film of Stand By Me until now. Until after reading the story, I I did it, guys. I streamed it. I sat down on my couch. I put my phone away. I watched it. And oh my gosh, what a sparkling diamond of a movie. It just had tears falling down my cheeks. And it wasn't as hard of a cry with Shawshank. When I read Shawshank, it was an ugly cry <laughs> that uh, caught me off guard a little bit. And uh, I, but I did cry. I wasn't as dramatic of a cry. And uh, if you've seen the movie, I hope it made you shed a tear or two. And we're going to talk about why Stand By Me is beloved, why Stephen King loved it, why everybody loves it in a section coming up a little later. But for now, I just want to introduce how meaningful The Body is as a novella. I was super excited because I love it when the actual time in a novel is the same month you're living and breathing in, so that felt really fun. Um, But these young men just in these early September days, this Indian summer, super hot outside, and all they have is these last days of summer together. They all broke my heart in tremendous ways, and all of these young men were very real for me, and two of them especially. Well, no, honestly all four of them, especially Vern, that precious little simpleton, but 
When I was reading the story, I really just wanted to reach in through the pages and hug them all really tightly. But then I realized that maybe not that tight because <laughs> they are 12 and 13 and on the brink of being little baby pervs if they're not there already. But um, instead of a tight hug, I would probably genuinely just give them a friendly fist bump and a thumbs up. But I was just so compelled in my heart to tell them how strong they are and how sorry I am that so many adults have let them down so terribly and that it'll get better and uh, I'm getting a little weepy just thinking about these amazing boys. I think it's just the inner instructor. Once you're a teacher and once you have that under your belt, it, it kind of stays with you a while and it's a pretty sensitive zone in your heart. So uh, yeah, I, I definitely was pulled in by the power of this story and I just wanted to echo it here first that this novella, The Body, was right up there with the power of Shawshank in its heavy emotional weight and beautiful delivery. And it's one of those greats with the capital G and I'm, I'm just going to adore it forever and I got, my friends, I just can't with this collection. I swear it's like King's gold medal. We just have so much gold in here, folks. So much gold. These stories are, I'm, I'm speechless. So we're going to explore uh, more of why we just need to bow down and worship this amazing novella collection. Um, but before we dive in and segue to our stellar character cast, I wanted to take a mini side tangent to nerd out to the fact that the climactic action in the body takes place in the city of Harlow, Maine. And my guys, I'm just loving Harlow this year. I am loving it. So firstly, to connect Harlow, um, we have discussed it previously in both of my If It Bleeds episodes, part one. I talk about Mr. Harrigan's phone, which is the very first story in that collection. That story takes place in Harlow, and we have the somewhat understated but still pretty relevant aspect of electricity or some kind of electric kinetic bond between two characters in a kind of benevolent Frankenstein way. Um, I loved Mr. Harrigan's phone. It was actually my favorite story in If It Bleeds. But then, a few episodes later, um, I covered Revival, a novel I absolutely adore. Revival also takes place in Harlow, Maine, where there is literal lightning and electric phenomena everywhere. And the Frankenstein elements are operating at full power. And I'm just... So thrilled to report that in the body, the boys make it to Harlow, Maine. And not only do they come upon what they've been searching for, but guess what happens? A hugely intense thunderstorm with lightning and mist and hail. And as they teach you in film school, anytime we have the presence of rain in a feature film, it usually almost always opens up or alludes to big changes. So anytime you're watching your favorite movie and you see a scene of rain pouring down out the window or on characters, it indicates 
great change. Uh, great change for the stories, change for those characters, things be changing. And that's exactly what happens in this story uh, with the scene of the rain, but I just adore Harlow, Maine right now, guys. I just, I'm so into it. And I know that all of us constant readers, everybody kind of starts instantly salivating in a Pavlovian response. When we hear Castle Rock, we all like perk up and our eyes widen. I am the same. I do that as well. I'm right there with you. Uh, cheering from the bleachers when I hear the town of Castle Rock mentioned, but Harlow is quite literally an electric place. That entire town is a hotbed lightning rod for activity, and there is a real-life lightning rod called Skytop in Revival that is one of the coolest, most cinematic settings in that novel, and it's also just, it's so awesome knowing that Harlow in three separate stories is a just electric epicenter and uh, oh my gosh so I'm so smitten for Harlow guys I want more of it I love that every time we get mention of Harlow at least in the three iterations I've mentioned we have lightning we have storm we have change we have weather turned up to level 11 and it makes for such an amazing setting in King's World I'm all about it yay Harlow I need a Harlow main t-shirt somebody and it better have a huge lightning bolt down the center of it so if I have any graphic designers out there let's make this happen so Harlow is featured and it made my day but the entire story of the body just melted my heart and made me care so deeply and when it ended I felt a little hollowed out in a good way but I I don't know about you guys but I immediately missed those precious little punks who have uh, I gosh they just all of them have such really heavy loads to carry around with them and it gave me a lot of sympathy for kids in that time period uh, what I enjoy about this story is how this kind of made me think of that boomer generation with a little bit more kindness. Um, my parents were a little younger than our cast of characters, but on, um, on the good side of being in the late 50s, early 60s, it well, maybe 70s as well, and I'm sure 80s kids would agree that being a latchkey kid is was just part of life where kids just roamed and wandered and got into mischief and you just essentially ran wild through the streets and you, you lived on bicycles and, uh, you know, friendships and neighborhood kids and groups and yeah, it was just a, a really precious time that I think... Um, is it's I'm sad that it's lost because post 1980s I think we had so many freaking kidnappings at least here in the states and then video games came on board and all of a sudden we all became kind of indoor folk and the kind of outdoor youth and coming of age it's not really like that anymore especially uh, these days so in that, on that side of it, I really enjoy sort of looking at this time period and the, the positive side of being latchkey kids and sort of growing up with your friends around town on bikes. But on the opposite side, um, when I really investigate the negative side of maybe the boomer generation, there is just some 
absolute unforgivable lawlessness in terms of penalties for domestic abuse and not only advocating for a child's well-being, not setting them up for success, but not intervening when it was more than evident there was immense unrest in the home. And unfortunately, my own parents have these really sad tales about things that happened in their young lives that it's horrifying to think of now, but they just use that phrase, it's just how it was back then. And it's really painful to think back on that, to go back and observe how terrible it could be out there for young people if you didn't win the lottery luckwise and have good parents. You were screwed in a lot of ways, and uh, I think it gives me immense sympathy for all who grew up in that time period. But without going too deep on that side of it, I feel myself floating off into uh, pontificating on a very weird soapbox. But on the more positive side, the slice of lice slice of lice, I don't know what that is, um, slice of life element in this pre-Vietnam, post-1950s baby boom thing, I'm thinking this may have been really close to Steve's heart because this is the time frame of his personal childhood. So I got out my calculator and I did a little literary math and our king was born in 1947, making him 13 years old in 1960. 60, which would make him the exact age, if not one year older than the boys in our main cast. And if you guys remember the novel It, I mention it quite a bit because it's one of my top five, if not maybe my top three all-time King novels. It took place in Derry, Maine in 1958-59. I'm pretty sure it's 1958. So we have a few years before 1960, but the same vibe is present. And I wonder, I couldn't help but think if the body as a novella with these precious young little rabble-rousers were the seedlings for the 1986 epic that would come down the pipe only four years later. And it introduced us all to the unforgettable, iconic losers club of Beverly, Bill, Eddie, Richie, Mike, Ben, and Stan. Poor Stan. Sweet man. And that scumbag Henry Bowers, he doesn't count, but <laughs> he snuck in there last second. Um, but the losers club, I think, was the fruiting tree that originated from the soil of these four little princes, Chris, Gordy, Teddy, and Vern. For me, I think they may have tilled the land for King's future crop most definitely. So what do you guys think? Do you guys think that uh, that's how it went? Let me know. Uh, well, you can always write to me at underwritedsk at gmail, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think they were the seedlings for our Losers Club. Um, I cannot wait to talk about characters with you. That's going to be our first section explored today because I'm chomping at the bit. I love these guys so much. There is so much good stuff here without making you wait any longer. So let's explore our four main characters in the incredible novella, The Body.
Welcome to the character section, everyone. Before we begin exploring our characters, unfortunately, we have to backpedal just a little bit because Kim C forgot to give you a synopsis of the story in the previous section. Usually she does. This is uh, not regularly scheduled programming, I promise. Um, but let's go ahead and explore a summary I jotted down really quick to refresh any seasoned constant readers out there that haven't read this one in a while or any new king readers who are interested and you want to know a little bit more of what the body is all about so let's start with a brief summary in 1960, Gordy Lachance and his three friends don't let the fact they're only 12 years old stop them from hiking out into the rural forest of Maine to see a dead body. The four friends grab their sleeping bags and little else and follow the train tracks to where the last known whereabouts of a deceased 13-year-old Ray Brower are said to be. The heat is hot and the walk is long, but what's shared on the journey to the body unites the friends to each other, and for one weekend in September, they're all closer than brothers. So the four characters, the four main characters we have in this 154-page novella are all lovable hellions in that they're rebellious and very cheeky, and unfortunately all of them have domestic problems of one variety or another. Some of them have legitimate dangerous situations at home where there's a lot of abuse, and others are just ignored, and it's a bit of a mix of both abuse and neglect, but all of these four guys are out living life in the streets, but from the sounds of it, they're not deliberate trouble starters, nor are they vandals, but they're trying to become men way sooner than needed. So when we first meet these guys, they're in their little tin-roofed clubhouse with some centerfolds pinned up and they're dabbling with liquor and smoking cigarettes and lots of cursing and being generally thick into a climate of mischief. But what I enjoy is that these guys are totally free when they're together and when they're in each other's company. It's one of the great parts of spending time with these characters. And I think it's also the reason why it's so easy to embrace all of their rule-breaking and foul language because the reader realizes it pretty much sucks for these kids at home. And we realize that pretty early on in the story. So when we observe them together, we see how happy they are and it makes us happy. Uh, these guys are consistently having fun, they enjoy each other, and when they're together they get to escape the mess of their lives and find a little acceptance with one another. So it's really special to read and be a part of. And as soon as this story ended, I missed these little cheeky monsters so much. So let's begin now uncovering the characteristics of our main four. I'm going to focus on how the novella describes all of them, and then in the next section we will look at how the 1986 movie portrays them. So our number one is Gordy Lachance. So young Gordon is our narrator, and given the structure of this story, 
it is the roots of his personal memoir. So not only is Gordy our main narrator, but it's through his character that we're observing this story. It's wholeheartedly through his eyes. Um, not only this story, but the time period, as well as his observation of these other young boys in his life. Gordy has much older parents, definite senior citizen aged parents as his mother is 55 and I believe his father is in his early 60s, but unfortunately poor Gordon is largely ignored by his parents mostly because in April, which the story takes place in September, so a few months prior, Gordy's older brother, Dennis, or Denny, was killed in a car accident on a military base. He was basically killed instantly, and his parents, not only are they in a huge depression and floating through life in a catatonic state and just kind of going through the motions, but they're also very old, and I don't know if they have the energy as well as the spiritual wholeness to be good parents to Gordy as he needs. But sadly, Gordy isn't as prized as his older brother in their hearts, which is really tragic. And uh, so what we see with Gordy is that he loves his friends, but he loves writing stories even more. So we have two cutscenes in this novella that are um, two of Gordy's stories, and uh, we can observe right away that he's very talented. My favorite one is the very boyishly gross barfy pie-eating contest that's really ridiculous and over-the-top, but it's very fun. And the time jumps throughout the narration have Gordy reporting to us as someone who is married, and I believe he's a father of three. He also went to Vietnam, if I'm remembering that correctly, but he's a successful novelist, and he's able to make a pretty decent living with it. So I do really see King in the character of Gordy in terms of being the eyes of it all, um, as well as writing it all down, being that sort of... Uh, the, the man holding the pen. But what I like about Gordy is he's reasonably brave and brash, and although he enjoys all his friends equally, I think he and Chris Chambers really see eye to eye in a deeper way. Uh, their characters throughout the story have a bit more depth, and they link together in those deeper ways that friends do because there is a mutual sympathy for one another, but also a lot of respect. I think the film shows this really well, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit here. But Gordy is the most talented one in the group based on ability and intelligence and this amazing talent to, uh, to make up these, these stories with great ease. And if you guys remember the film Goodwill Hunting, this reminds me a lot of that, at least the character of Gordy. Um, Goodwill Hunting was a 1997 film starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Robin Williams, and I loved that script so much. It's such a good movie if you haven't seen it. But Matt Damon is our main character, and he is from a very rough end of South Boston. 
His friends are all he has. He also had an abusive father and an upsetting home life. And he happens to be an absolute math genius, but works as a janitor. He is legitimately genius level math savant, but he holds himself back because he's afraid and really loyal to his friends. And the character of Gordy reminds me of Matt Damon's character just a little bit in that he has an extreme amount of talent and his friends know it and uh, kind of, they're not necessarily jealous or envious, but I think there's just a little tiny pit of sadness wishing they had what Gordy had. Um, and Chris Chambers kind of constantly reminds Gordy he's the only one who will ever be able to escape Castle Rock. He's the only one who has the talent to make it out because the rest of them have so much stacked against them. They're just going to rot there and become losers. But Gordy is our eyes in the story and oh my gosh guys, there's so much beautiful writing. I can't wait to share with you guys. Um, one of my favorite Gordy sections because he's so special and this narrative voice has a lot of rich depths. And uh, actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and uh, read one of the excerpts I have for you right now. I can't wait any longer. I love it so much. This is from chapter 24 on page 414 in the American hardcover. So I'm gonna this is a two-pager, so it's a little long, but I just I can't shorten this gorgeousness, guys. I just want you to hear how beautifully King is setting up this foreshadowing as well as this wonderful narrative voice that's so strong in memory and uh, tradition and growth and okay, let's get into it. In the years between then and the writing of this memoir, I've thought remarkably little about those two days in September, at least consciously. The associations the memories bring to the surface are as unpleasant as weak old river corpses brought to the surface by cannon fire. As a result, I never really questioned our decision to walk down the tracks. Put another way, I've wondered sometimes about what we had decided to do, but never how we did it. But now a much simpler scenario comes to mind. I'm confident that if the idea had come up, it would have been shot down. Walking down the tracks would have seemed neater, bosser, as we said then. But if the idea had come up and hadn't been shot down in flames, none of the things which occurred later would have happened. Maybe Chris and Teddy and Vern would even be alive today. No, they didn't die in the woods or on the railroad tracks. Nobody dies in this story except some bloodsuckers and Ray Brower. And if you want to be completely fair about it, he was dead before it even started. But it is true that of the four of us who flipped coins to see who would go down to the Florida market to get supplies, only the one who actually went is still alive. The ancient mariner at 34, with you, gentle reader, in the role of wedding guest, at this point shouldn't you flip to the jacket photo to see if my eye holdeth you in its spell? If you sense a certain flipness on my part, you're right, but maybe I have cause. At an age when all four of us would be considered too young and immature to be president, three of us are dead. 
And if small events really do echo up larger and larger through time, yes, maybe if we had done the simple thing and simply hitched into Harlow, they would still be alive today. We could have hooked a ride all the way up Route 7 to the Shiloh Church, which stood at the intersection of the highway and the back Harlow Road, at least until 1967, when it was leveled by a fire attributed to a tramp smoldering cigarette butt. With reasonable luck, we could have gotten to where the body was by sundown of the previous day. But the idea wouldn't have lived. It would have been shot down with tightly buttressed arguments and debating society rhetoric. But with grunts and scowls and farts and raised middle fingers, the verbal part of the discussion would have been carried forward with such trenchant and sparkling contributions as, fuck no, that sucks, and that old reliable standby, did your mother ever have any kids that lived? Unspoken, maybe, but it was too fundamental to be spoken, was the idea that this was a big thing. It wasn't screwing around with firecrackers or trying to look through the knothole in the back of the girls' privy at Harrison State Park. This was something on par with getting laid for the first time, or going into the army, or buying your first bottle of legal liquor, just bopping into that state store if you can dig it, selecting a bottle of good scotch, showing the clerk your draft card and driver's license, then walking out with a grin on your face and that brown bag in your hand, member of a club with just a few more rights and privileges than our old tree house with a tin roof. There's a high ritual to all fundamental events. The rites of passage, the magic corridor where the change happens, buying the condoms, standing before the minister, raising your hand and taking the oath, or, if you please, walking down the railroad tracks to meet a fellow your own half your own age halfway, the same as I'd walk halfway over to Pine Street to meet Chris if he was coming over to my house, or the way Teddy would walk halfway down Gate Street to meet me if I was going to his. It seemed right to do it this way, because the rite of passage is a magic corridor, and so we always provide an aisle. It's what you walk down when you get married, what they carry you down when you get buried. Our corridor was those twin rails, and we walked between them, just bopping along toward whatever this was supposed to mean. You don't hitchhike your way to a thing like that, maybe. And maybe we thought it was also right that it should have turned out to be harder than we had expected. Events surrounding our hike had turned into what we had suspected it was all along. Serious business. Uh, so I realized that I had a few more spoilers than I thought. So please forgive me, guys, if I uh, ruined all the things for you, but we do have an immensely tragic ending of this beautiful story, but you don't know how they died, so uh, I'm going to hang on to that one. So let's dive into our second character, Vern Tessio. So Vern is referred to as a little simple, and I do think he may have an undiagnosed learning disability, but in the story he's held back a grade or two, and I think they kind of just roll with the fact that he's a little bit on the slower side academically. But in person, he's sharp and funny, and he's the one who really gets the plot of our story in motion. 
Vern has a mean older brother named Billy and he learns by accidentally being at the wrong place at the wrong time that the Castle Rock boy named Ray Brower, I believe he's Castle Rock, he actually might be from a different town, but um, Ray Brower has been on the news for the past few days and Vern finds out that he is dead and his brother Billy said where the body is and knows where the body is. Um, so Vern, looking for his long lost penny jar under the porch, learns that the young boy is in Harlow and he races to tell his friends about it. And what I like about Vern is he seems to be the most in touch with his inner fear. He's not afraid to show it. He's not afraid to run when he's scared or dip out when it gets gnarly. But he also has proved himself ready to fight when the moment calls for it. I do believe he's a little bit more brave and gutsy in the novel. Um, the actual film, or the novella, the actual film has him a little bit more of a fraidy cat, but I think Vern has a lot more gumption in the actual story. And I enjoy that he's pretty in touch with himself. What I don't like is that Vern does seem to get a lot of abuse from his older brother, Billy, who sucks, and that stinks. Um, but there's more of a closer bond. I think the two, well, the group of four sort of split off a little bit, and Vern and Teddy seem to get along really well together, and then Chris and Gordy are really close. Our third character, Teddy Duchamp. Uh, Teddy is so great. I love this guy, guys. So Teddy is a little spitfire in that he's a real daredevil to the point that borderlines on a slight death wish. I don't think he would call it a death wish, but it seems like that. He gets into a lot of dangerous situations just to see how tough he is. And uh, the character of Teddy has really thick glasses and has hearing aids on both ears, as well as some deeply scarred ears due to a, <sighs> wow, a horrible, horrible, horrible scene of abuse. Thank God we don't have the actual scene, but Gordy recalls and tells the reader that Teddy's father seemingly wrecked by alcoholism and post-traumatic stress disorder, grabbed Teddy and pressed his ears to a really hot stove. And this caused permanent hearing damage and scarring. And the scene of this in my imagination, it really shakes me. It really upsets me quite a bit. It's quite awful. So it's like almost borderline too much for my heart. It's so tragic, but Teddy in this bizarre vein of forgiveness that I think only young people can have. He still loves his father and gets really angry when people in the town say anything bad about him. And one of my favorite scenes and what I noticed during an altercation Teddy has with the town dump manager named Milo um, 
Teddy and Milo are kind of having a screaming match because Milo insulted his father and calls him a lunatic and a crazy and Teddy screams my father stormed the beaches of Normandy and all he could do was echo all these good things his father did and how brave his father is even though he's currently in a mental institution and what's so interesting is Teddy didn't focus or let the bad stuff come into his perspective and I find that really touching and still very sad because he loves his father and probably doesn't hate his father for what he did to him but on the other hand I think the fact that his father made him such a victim and that he was such a smaller and weaker person that couldn't fight his father off I'm just imagining that that developed into the reason why Teddy is such a risk taker and such a daredevil. I think he puts himself willingly in danger in order to feel big, to feel brave, to feel tough, and to feel like he could take on the world. And he gets the group very close to a risky situation with the train because Teddy is hell-bent on proving himself that he's big enough, brave enough, and that just breaks me because he doesn't want to feel small the way his father made him feel small. So this unfortunately bleeds into more dangerous things as Teddy grows into a teenager. We don't see these things in the story, but we do hear of them in the last section of the novella. And Teddy dreams of a career in the military, but due to his disabilities, I don't think he's successful. And because he can't really get his thrills as a soldier, his appetite for the extreme has some strong consequences that we're going to talk about in greater detail a little bit later, but Teddy is a fascinating, heartbreaking character, and I really wish it would have been different for him. I wish it would have been different for all of them, but I really wish that Teddy would have had someone to tell him he's valuable without having to act brave. Lastly, our number four in this quad of bright golden stars is Chris Chambers. Oh, guys, this precious character. So Chris is so wise. He is so much older than who his young body is. He's definitely an old soul. He is the one who's really in touch with the way the world works, which is quite fascinating for such a young person. But what's very sad is that Chris has accepted that he comes from really bad stock. Um, his family is seen as trash amongst the town. They have a really bad reputation and for Chris, there's no reason to even try to be more or be better or do good because this town is all there is and you can't change your name. He can't change where he comes from and so everybody's going to have preconceived ideals against him. Everybody's against him, so why should he try? And unfortunately, Chris has, I believe, one of the most tragic storylines. This one just wrecks me. Uh, his father beats him so badly, there are multiple hospitalizations, multiple instances of broken bones. This kid is tormented and tortured, and what's so tragic is, you know, 
he covers for his father all the time and I understand that's just kind of what you did back then which is unbelievably sad to hear um, that there's Chris is living just in this house full of secrets and shame and more secrets and it's very sad to realize that this repeat offender and absolute fall down drunk could almost kill his son multiple times with no repercussions so it it definitely makes me enraged but thankfully Chris is one of the bravest characters who in the final act of the book has a real transformation of the heart when he actually sees the dead body of young Ray Brower. He really just lets go of all fear and faces it down and doesn't care what the consequences will be. And uh, in the last chunk of the book, Chris gets really motivated to get out of Castle Rock. And I think he got that motivation to live life and try and live and run away from the pain and mess. And he realized in order to do that, he needed an education. So he and Gordy study really hard, but he studies hardest of all because he had so much time to make up after skipping school and not caring for so long because he had that cloud of I'm no good because my family sucks hanging over him year after year after year. So for me, I think Chris has the biggest transformation because due to so many adults letting him down, even when he did the right thing and due to all the mess that wasn't his fault, that by default incriminated him into a life of appearing no good. And he was really rooted in that self-deprecating attitude of I am bad, I am no good. But after seeing the dead body of Ray Brower, he really changes and has this immense shift in who he feels he is, what's possible, what can be. He works really hard and he gets out of Castle Rock and he's a practicing law student and he does get to see that you don't have to be doomed to the destiny of a terrible family. You can break out and get away and be different. You can. It is quite inspiring. So out of our four little gentlemen, by the time a believe Gordy is 32 years old writing his memoir he does inform the reader of which I kind of spoiled it in the text excerpt I read but he does inform the reader that all three of his friends are no longer living and so to preserve the story and not spoil it totally I'm not going to tell you how they pass away because I think that can be kept for when you read the story but for me, realizing these sweet young men didn't have a lot of time on earth after that weekend in the woods really hits hard, guys. It makes the whole experience and the entire narration feel so much more in a intensely bright focus. All the significant things become special. All the silly moments have this heavy weight to them this bright shining light, everything is in sharp focus. It really makes this story of four little kids so powerful and so filled with meaning. So to recap our four, we have Gordy Lachance, 
Vern Tessio, Teddy Duchamp, and Chris Chambers. And now that we have a good idea of the players, let's talk about some of the themes we have in the body, as well as one area of the story I actually didn't care for quite that much. It's just one little chunk, and we'll also explore the 1986 film, Stand By Me. Okay guys, in this section we're going to examine areas of the story that I really loved, places where I felt some exceptionally wonderful writing is occurring, and some strong themes, and then I was thinking we could segue into the 1986 film. So to kick us off, I actually have two strong themes, unique elements, lovely essential parts of this novella that I did want to bring up and mention to you. And the first one is kind of the more somber note, but I think it's one of the strongest themes in this story, and that is the failure of adults. So overall, as I was reading this novella for the first time, it just makes me incredibly sad that we truly don't have one good adult present in this entire story, guys. There is absolutely not one positive adult figure for these children. And I say children because I'm pretty sure they're all under the age of 13. So tweens or preteens, they're not quite there yet. And so these young folk essentially have no one to admire or look up to that's in their town, at least that we hear of in this story. The ones who they do speak of in high esteem are either rock stars or movie stars or maybe each other or other kids their age. And this really just proves sort of the motivations of all of the characters and explains why they're all trying to grow up so fast and be men of their own so they don't have to take crap from all of these terrible people who lord over them. Uh, every single one of their fathers I hate. I really do. They're all garbage. Maternal figures aren't really mentioned, but it seems as though they're not really assisting with anything or contributing to anything positive. And, you know, the roles of women traditionally were limited, so I'm not going to fault them too, too much. But there's just not a lot of of good from the maternal side and definitely zero good from the paternal side. But one of the most, the largest standout moments in the novella is concerning the character of Chris Chambers. There's a terrible teacher who, there's no other way to say it, but screws over Chris Chambers. And as an instructor, I've never wanted to deck anyone in the face more. Like, what kind of monster are you to do that to a student? Let alone a student, but a young student, like a child. 
So, nope, like, your fist is meeting my face. Plain and simple, I am completely pro-corporal punishment when it's those in power who abuse it. Oh yeah, I would, I would deck that lady in the face. And every adult in this story is a sack of garbage, my friends. Like, it's, it's, it's upsetting. It's upsetting. I think that if you are someone who read this story, maybe as a younger reader, you, I, I don't know, maybe it might have just glazed over the fact of how all of the adult figures in this story are terrible. Um, I think it's one of those where age really comes into play when you read King at certain times in your life. Uh, for example, I can't, I can't help but think of Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Everybody loves this book, like truly, it's always praised and everyone shouts from the rooftops that it's this great beatnik story about travel and adventure and Yes, I think if you're a dude, you can enjoy it. I think of I think single young men really love On the Road, but reading it as a as a woman or perhaps a more responsible tax-paying citizen, reading On the Road sucks. Like it's not an enjoyable story and it's basically kids who are not contributing to their communities and just causing all kinds of trouble and getting women pregnant left and right and um, having a incredibly risky sexual exploits and robbing, stealing, carousing, drinking, violence, and you're just like, this is praised. This, this book. I get it. It's a vibe. It's a timepiece. It's the period. I get it. I can appreciate it. But I am noticing that if I would have read Stand By Me maybe as an adolescent or I think I would have overlooked all of the sad adult lack of good parenting, lack of good inspiration or mentorship, but I really am having a hard time <laughs> now. It just brings a lot of pain to my heart. Um, and. Yeah, so a little bit of a segue there. Uh, I'd love to hear if you guys have read On the Road. I, I basically I'm just looking to to talk with one person who might have disliked it because I I dislike it. I I really do, and um, I've asked myself why quite a bit. So I'd love to discuss it with you at a later time. But back to our our guys. I just that scene with Chris Chambers. Um, and the teacher who harms him in a way, it's not physical harm, but basically harms his psyche in a way where teachers are supposed to be people you can trust and people who will help you. And this woman absolutely betrays Chris Chambers, and it's a devastating thing to read in the book. And I really wish that maybe one or two nice people may, or just a kind adult could have been added to the story to give it balance. Granted, I understand it might have detracted from the core of the story, which is to say that everything is against these kids, really, everything is truly against these young men, which is why they cling to what they have with each other so tightly. They're clinging to this time in their lives because it's going to shape them forever as a result of 
at the present moment, all they really have is each other. And that is the most beautiful sentiment in the novella for sure. And it makes everything more poignant and precious. I just freaking wish that they would have had some good adults in this story because the pain, you guys, oh my friends, the pain these young people carry with them from the adults. These sweet people are just carrying the shame and sin of their family members and pain that doesn't belong to them. And it's really tragic in this story. And so I really wonder, I'm just, I can't help but observe how strongly I'm reacting to that element in the story as somebody who's uh, um, on a particular side of the 30s. And uh, I wonder if I would have read this story in my 20s or maybe in my teens, I probably wouldn't be caring about it as much as I do, but I'm really caring about it. So this is quite fascinating to me how um, the different seasons of life, pun intended, are really contributing to my digestion of the adult role in this story. So I feel, uh, if you guys read this one again, take a look at the adults and maybe see if you agree it's perfect as it is, or maybe there could have been a little bit of brevity with one positive adult figure in this story. I'd love to know what you think. My number two pick is going to lighten the mood a little bit because it is, I've titled it Friendship is Everything. So if you're new to King's writing world, one of his most celebrated works is a novel I can't sing enough of its praises. It's truly the best thing since sliced bread, and that is the 1986 novel It. I know I say that a lot, but it's true, guys. It's truly true. If you've read it, you know what I mean. If you haven't read it, please make it something you do relatively soon. But it is, it, the novel, is so successful for a few reasons. The most popular one, I believe, is the villain of Pennywise, um, mostly because they've marketed it to high heaven, which is great. Um, the clown is truly terrifying because clowns in general are scary as hell. But the other reason why I think the novel itself is so wonderful and so enduring because it's a beautiful, remarkable story of friendship, of lasting friendship through deep trauma, loss, and pain. And I think we have those same elements in play here for the body. So if you're new to King's work, um, reading both the body and or it will prepare you for King's writing at his finest. I think, um, I know I've mentioned it one or two other places, but there is absolute treasure when you read King exploring not only childhood and adolescence and the awkwardness of that whole messy stage of life, but add on top of that terrible parenting and abuse and then on top of that, an evil demon is trying to kill you. So um, I think the novel It definitely had the trifecta of all of those. Not only did we have, you know, abuse, bad parenting, um, absolute neglect, and childhood bullying, then you get a psycho monster that only appears to you 
in your thoughts, in your dreams, in your mental state. Oh my God, it's 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 too much is what it is, but it's also one of the, the greatest novels. So it had all of those wrapped up in a burrito, but the body is absolutely channeling the beautiful power of friendship. And what I like about the body is it's a bit more subtle than it. It has, if you think back to some of the more emotional moments in the story, they're some of my most favorite moments in the book, of course, because I'm such a exposed nerve all the time of emotion, but it has a lot of huggy moments. It's got a lot of sappy parts that I totally adore. Um, I think they're great in the novel because they're very needed with all the terror these kids are going through. But with the body, there isn't a, there isn't a monster chasing after these young men. It's just the suckage of their home lives and bullies um, around town that they have to fend off. And of course, the bullies themselves also have terrible home lives. There's no positive adults for these precious people. But everyone is in this mess together. But the theme of friendship is one of the strongest areas where King's writing is unforgettable. It's unmatchable. But I like it that in the body because these these guys are so tough you know they're just trying to be tough and be strong there's not a lot of the if there's there's huggy parts but it's mostly just breaking down these poor sweet uh young men just get pushed to the point of breaking where they end up sobbing and they kind of just silently stoically stand by each other, which is why the title of the film is so perfect, but they just sort of are there and they'll put an arm around each other and they may not say much. And I think that's a little bit more subtle than the more grand emotional displays like in It, but it's working so, so well, guys. So when King is writing about childhood and friendship, he could be in a coma and it would be better than anything else anyone could write on their best day. I truly, that's how good at it he is. He gets to the marrow of that pain of being a kid, of being confused, and being really stuck because you love your parents, they're all you know, but yet they hurt you, they make you cry, they make life difficult, and you're not old enough or experienced enough yet to realize how toxic they are and that you need to break away. So you're just chained as a young person to an incredibly destructive entity who is destroying you. So how do you find relief? You find it in simple pleasures with books, soda, movies, candy, baseball, and hanging out with your buddies and riding bikes all day long and scrounging together cash for snacks and other bits of fun. You escape life with your friends. They're all you have. And it's a beautiful, beautiful theme that King... I've just never read anybody who does it quite like him. So I'm loving the theme of friendship in this story. I love the differences between reading it and this one. And I think these guys in the body are a lot more crass. They're a lot more mean to each other as well. Even though it's in a joking way, it's still a little cranky. Whereas the Losers Club or the kids in it are... Oh, those poor precious angels. They're so messed up from their trauma, guys. I think they 
because they're so afraid by what's happening to them in their everyday waking lives, I think they handle each other with a bit more delicacy. But these guys, our four, are just ruthless with the jokes, the insults, um, and it's a fun dynamic when you're able to look at both. But before we read this section, I wanted to read my favorite, actually, yeah, this is my favorite, my favorite scene in the novel where we have some amazing king writing, but we also have this very powerful theme of youth confronting death, the finality of death, and they're experiencing it up close. And Gordy in this moment is confronting the resonating shock of that. So I'm going to read you this excellent scene that starts on page 420. That finally rammed it all the way home for me. The kid was dead. The kid wasn't sick. The kid wasn't sleeping. The kid wasn't going to get up in the morning anymore or get the runs from eating too many apples or catch poison ivy or wear out the eraser on the end of his Ticonderoga number two during a hard math test. The kid was dead, stone dead. The kid was never going to go out bottling with his friends in the spring, gunny sack over his shoulder to pick up the returnables, the retreating snow uncovered. The kid wasn't going to wake up at 2 o'clock a.m. on the morning of November 1st this year, run to the bathroom and vomit up a big glurt of cheap Halloween candy. The kid wasn't going to pull a single girl's braid in homeroom. The kid wasn't going to give a bloody nose or get one. The kid was can't, don't, won't, never, shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't. He was the side of the battery where the terminal said negative. The fuse you have to put a penny in. The wastebasket by the teacher's desk, which always smells of wood shavings from the sharpener and dead orange peels from lunch. The haunted house outside of town where the windows are crashed out. The no trespassing signs whipped away across the fields, the attic full of bats, the cellar full of rats. The kid was dead, mister, ma'am, young sir, little miss. I could go on all day and never get it right about the distance between his bare feet on the ground and his dirty keds hanging in the bushes. It was 30 plus inches. It was a Google of light years. The kid was disconnected from his keds beyond all hope of reconciliation. He was dead. We turned him face up into the pouring rain, the lightning, the steady crack of thunder. Oh my gosh, you guys. Oh, if you could see me right now, I'm just bowing down and bowing to his royal highness, the king. Oh, it's just so gorgeous. It's uh, so packed with vivacity and power and... Oh, the immensity of what little Gordy is experiencing and yet he's channeling it as an adult man and oh it's so powerful it just it levels me all right so um before we go here is one thing I didn't really care for I did want to mention one tiny element it's really extra small but in my investigation I did want to bring it up 
this would have been a perfect novella for me minus one thing that's very minor but I did want to mention it to you guys and that is too long of cutscenes with Gordy's first short story. <laughs> so in the novella we have, I think I mentioned earlier, two little short story cutscenes. One of them is hilarious and it's about a pie eating contest where an overweight kid gets revenge by drinking castor oil which sounds revolting and I don't even know if it exists anymore. He drinks castor oil and then shoves a bunch of blueberry pies into his face and vomits projectile vomits all over everybody and then everyone just vomits all over each other and it's it's very juvenile it's really funny. However this first scene is or this first short story is called Stud City and all of a sudden the narrative like we're getting to know the guys we're bouncing around town with all four of the friends and then all of a sudden there's a break and Gordy has a story written in 1970 so you're like okay we're in the future now that's okay interesting and it's called Stud City and it's very strange and it's kind of like a noir detective-y thing. There's a lot of like sex and violence and it kind of is operating like a 1930s noir piece detective thing. But it's 13 pages long, my friends. And it has nothing to do with our four friends. It really doesn't. And it, nor does it have anything to do with the summer that they're living in, whereas the blueberry story was something Gordy was telling them when they're on their adventure. I think they're around the campfire and, you know, trading stories, or they're on the actual path. This segue, this, first of all, he's a undergrad writing it. He's probably, he's 22. And so it's like, what the hell is going on with it? Um, it really took me out of the piece because I'm reading this, this short story that Gordy wrote, trying to figure out how it's going to connect. And then after it's done, I keep reading. I keep waiting for it to connect somehow. He doesn't read it to anyone. He didn't share it with anyone. So it's really pointless. I, I don't get it. I don't get why Stud City is in the story unless it's directly reacting or interacting, I should say, with one of the other characters. I I understand it's his memoir, Gordy's memoir, as an adult grown man sort of reflecting on this trip, but why is that in there? Why is an undergrad story that has nothing to do with the four friends? Um, so if I was in the editing room, friends, I would, uh, I would tap Mr. King on the shoulder and ask, uh, why? What's going on here? Can we omit Stud City? Um, because the blueberry story, awesome, perfect, hilarious, really wonderful. The four friends or the three friends love it and enjoy it and have questions for Gordy about it. You know, that's something that is a part of our narrative. This is not. So how about we backpedal a little bit and press the delete button? Okay, thanks. So that's the one area that I wasn't super crazy about. But that's it. Other than that, it's so, so awesome. So let's segue now into my thoughts on the 1986 film Stand By Me. 
So to kick us off on my thoughts regarding the film, I did want to read a quote from Mr. King about the movie that he gave in a Rolling Stone interview. And he says, I thought it was true to the book because it had the emotional gradient to the story. It was moving. I think I scared Rob Reiner. He showed it to me in the screening room at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And you have to remember that the movie was made on a shoestring. It was supposed to be one of those things that opened in six theaters and then maybe disappeared. And instead, it went viral. When the movie was over, I hugged him because I was moved to tears. I like that quote quite a bit, but my friends, this film is an amazing adaptation. I, oh, wow. It was such a treat after having finished reading the story uh, for the very first time and then watching the movie in its entirety for the first time and hearing the exact same passages I had just read in the story come out of the screen. It is, oh, I can't express enough how enjoyable it is when filmmakers stay close to the source material. And this one really does. It kept keeping the voice the voiceover. Keeping Gordy's narrative voice was so smart. It was such a smart thing to do. And I think that's why Shawshank is such a success because we have Red's narrative voice and it kept that voiceover. And that's where the power is, folks. It honors King's work and keeps the heart of the story and the changes made in the movie are minimal enough to where it doesn't really skew the overall outcome of King's story. So I actually think the film improved on a few areas, but overall this movie, oh, I think it is what it is, not only because it stayed close to source material, it kept that beautiful voiceover and narration, but this film is what it is, guys, because of the brilliant young actors. And I just need to give us a good hard stop everything right now real quick, because can we talk about River Phoenix? You, oh my gosh. Can we talk about this beyond brilliant performance? Oh, this guy. Well, firstly, it just makes me so sad that we lost this man so soon. Uh, for those of you who don't know about River Phoenix, he is the actor who portrays Chris Chambers, and he passed away in 1993 from an overdose. And this brilliant actor, he's... he's Oh my god. I feel he would have been the DiCaprio level, if not the Daniel Day-Lewis level of acting. I just wish he was still with us because I cannot imagine the roles he just would have killed it in. I cannot imagine the amazing movies he would have given all of us. And I did the math and he is probably, he was probably 15 when they were filming, either 14, 15. And Oh my gosh, you guys, he's just so intense. This young person is so intense and not in like an, you know, uh, 
can't be controlled kind of way, but just the sincerity he brings to this role. He's so present and there, and he has this knowing about him and his expressive eyes and face. And I swear, watching River Phoenix performance as Chris Chambers is like witnessing a baby Brando. Like, he's one of the greats, folks. He just is. And his portrayal of Chris Chambers is so perfect and moving, and he balances the tough and the soft perfectly. And oh my guys, he just made the tears flow for me because not only is his performance just incredible, and I do mean incredible, but I think of the actor himself and all that potential and all the life still left to live. So it's very sad all the way around when you watch this this performance. Um, the other actors, Will Wheaton, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell, melted my heart as well and I think they're cast tremendously. And I actually really enjoyed Kiefer Sutherland as Ace Merrill. Ace Merrill is someone who's throughout King's work as a bad guy, and I'm looking forward to reading more about him in upcoming stories. But Kiefer Sutherland in this role is amazing. And I'm not just saying that because, uh, well, <laughs> a young Kiefer Sutherland really melts my butter in a lot of ways, but um, I've always dug him as a villain. I love Kiefer Sutherland when he's in a villain role. I think he's great. But what I enjoy about this performance is he really brings an iciness to Ace Merrill that I dug. The other bullies in the film are just dumb idiots who are bored and want to cause trouble, but Sutherland as Merrill is showing a little bit more something else. I don't know if it's like this blossoming alpha male or if it's like this sort of really sadistic mastermind kind of thing but he brings more to Ace Merrill in the movie than I think the book. Um, he Ace is much more interesting to me in the movie than he is in the books. There's something about Kiefer Sutherland's everything. I don't know if it's vibe or his sharp profile or the way he sneers his eyes. He's just got this evil stare. It's quite menacing and beguiling. I sound like I might have a little crush. Maybe I do. I don't know. <laughs> but um, he's an excellent pick for the role and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, so I'm gonna mention Four. That's it. I mean, no, three. I have three changes that the film contributed that changed the story, but I agree with them. I actually think they're pretty good. Number one, the flashbacks between Denny and Gordy. <sighs> so I love seeing a young John Cusack. He's precious, but the flashbacks between Denny and Gordy are very warm, and we don't really have too much warmth. We have a little warmth in the story, but the flashbacks in the movie really amplify the loss of Gordy's brother and make it more of an emotional catharsis for Gordy later on, and it really, really works. I'm so glad they did that. Number two, they don't get beat up at the end. Oh, I loved this. So at the end of the novella, the guys, the bullies, Ace Merrill, Billy Tessio, Eyeball Chambers, basically they're big brothers. 
they bring the heat and they really beat up our guys and it's terrible because we've just been on this immense journey with all four of our friends and they come home and they get really hurt. They get black eyes and broken bones and it's just so sad to hear of how hurt they get, how bruised and, and messed up. And so at that point in the novella, it's almost too much, but I enjoy that the film cut that part. So it ends not necessarily on a happier note, but on a less intensely violent note, which I was very grateful for. Number three, Gordy holds the gun. So in the standoff at the body, without revealing too, too much, I know I kind of already have quite a bit, my apologies, but the two groups kind of run into each other, uh, Ace Merrill and his gang, and then our four guys. Um, there's a little bit of a standoff, and in the novel, Chris holds the gun. Um, in the novella, I should say, I keep saying novel. Chris holds the gun and, you know, there's this really brave face off and Chris is sort of like the big hero. But in the movie, they make Gordy hold the gun. And I think the changing of gun holders says quite a bit. And I agree with the film. I, I like that it was Gordy and that he had the last stand. Because as a character, I feel in Chris's life, he always has to be brave and tough. And he always has to do that just to survive. But Gordy is always in the shadows, at least in his own house and perhaps in his own mind. So I like that they switched who holds the gun. I really approve of that. So to recap uh, my themes um, that I enjoy much, uh, very much so in the the novella of the body. Number one, the failure of adults. I just shake my head. Number two, friendship is everything. And then the number one thing I wasn't too hot about is uh, Gordy's short story of Stud City. Not my favorite. Let's edit that out. And then the three that I enjoy most the three changes that the film absolutely rocked. Number one, the flashbacks between Denny and Gordy. Number two, they don't get beat up at the end. And number three, Gordy holds the gun. So my friends, we've reached the end. Overall, the novella is an amazing, <laughs> such an amazing novella. Uh, but overall, Stand By Me is a perfect book to screen adaptation. It came to life for me so much, but I love all the moments that weren't necessarily in the book. Um, and that's where the film really succeeds in those visual elements when you see the boys smile when they're spitting water at each other and when you're really watching them interact together and sing songs. They're ad-libbing, they're skipping around, they're being young boys. Um, I'm so glad I watched the entire thing. Finally, uh, this is such a special adaptation, guys. It's such a special film, and it's one that King fans should really celebrate and be very proud of. I recommend reading the novella first because the movie is going to be, after you read the novella and then you watch the movie, it's like you're vividly stepping into The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy just walks into beautiful, vivid color. That's exactly what happens. You just, the movie pulls out whatever you were imagining in your mind, and it's so, so good. 
So at this point, my dear, dear friends, it's time to say goodbye to our four friends and head into the winter of our discontent and spend some time in a strange hearth within a mysterious brownstone. We're going to New York City where a uh, very odd and uh, curious men's club is trading tales by the firelight. So please follow me into our last and final story in different seasons, The Breathing Method. Welcome, friends, to the final story in this incredibly rich and decadent novella collection, Different Seasons. We have made it to winter, and specifically a winter's tale, where we're headed into New York City near the Christmas holiday in an undesignated 1970s, I believe, block of time, which we're going to investigate the shortest story in this collection at only 63 pages. So this story is the only novella that did not get a feature film release. And I think it's very possible it could get one, but this is a rather unique novella structurally, so I'm not sure how they would do it other than to stretch out the small chunk of horror we have in the middle into a full-on feature, which can be done, easily done actually, um, but uh, as I'm going to dissect here in a few minutes, we really have two stories in this novella, so it's, it's kind of interesting. Another thing is that uh, even though there are some terrifically graphic horror films out there, I don't know guys if this one can be made. I They could make it work, but well, um... It's, this story is very cool horror-wise, it's, but in the actual reveal of this very horrifying scenario, it's like, yikes, uh, very alien, very visual, like, powerfully nightmarish visual, um, moderately terrifying, and unfortunately, the subject matter having to do with birth is sensitive to a lot of people and so I don't know if it can be done the way the story has described it for the screen. It probably could. Um, if you get the right director, Mike Flanagan, that's your cue. Um, I think with the right director, anything is possible, but when I really look at the sort of climactic, horrifying reveal that occurs in this novella, I kind of shake my head a little bit, and I'm like, there's no way that could be a movie. There's just no way. It's too intense. Um, but then again, there's some really messed up stuff out there, so maybe, maybe it could. 
So the story overall, although unsettling in some of the creep-out parts, simultaneously the creep-out parts were really awesome. And for that reason, when I was reading this novella, I was thinking to myself, kind of over and over again, this is cool. Uh, <laughs> that was the phrase in my mind over and over again, this is cool. Um, so as I was scrolling through the pages, just uh, turning them, I was that that was the sentiment I had. The overall vibe is this is cool. And I think the coolness really solidified when we got to act two. And if you guys are a fan of Lovecraft, The Twilight Zone, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, this one's for you, my friends. This is old school horror fiction vibes, incredibly gothic. Uh, Shirley Jackson, throw her in there as well. Uh, we have a very traditional sort of old school, uh, early 20th century narrative style, and I'm going to give you a sample of that here coming up, but this whole thing feels very much like Lovecraft and Twilight Zone had a baby, but then HBO is also involved, so we're allowed to have a little bit more intense subject matter, perhaps some more adult content. So yeah, Lovecraft and Twilight Zone had a baby, and then HBO raised it, and, <laughs> and that's how I feel uh, the breathing method itself as the tale is operating. Um, in addition to the really old school narration style, we have a very cool and simultaneously peculiar uh, narrative structure. So we have three acts to this story, and the first and third acts have the same characters and plot, while act two is the left field outlier where we really step into some cold, slushy snow of the macabre. And I think this is a definite more ramped up uh, horror fiction, old school revisiting. Uh, but there is also something about the breathing method that is uniquely creepy that we're going to explore together, and I think it has to do with the horror elements as we get into act two. More on that in just a little bit. But because this story is a shorter one, we really don't have a lot of characters to break down in great detail. These are more uh, quick vignette sort of stand-ins for the greater work as a whole. So we're not going to dissect characters for the breathing method. Um, but instead, we're going to start with our summary and then explore some of the really well-done areas of this story. So David is in his 70s, but he heads over to 249B East 35th Street every Thursday evening to join several older gentlemen in a library hearth with an immense fire. Drinks and snacks are shared, and then someone, compelled or chosen, tells a tale. Every Thursday, year after year, David attends, observing this peculiar nature of the library, the house itself, the strange books on the shelves, and how the tales, one specifically called the breathing method, has him, according to his wife Ellen, screaming in the night from his dreams. 
So let's start in with narrative structure. I This is my big one. This is my one that I really enjoyed the most. In this story, we have our narrator, an old lawyer. He does say he's in his 70s, but I don't know if he's retired at that point. Um, but he is a law practicer named David. I'm not sure of his last name. He mentions a wife. There is no mention of children. It seems that they live in New York City. I'm not sure if the actual clubhouse is in Manhattan. It's They mentioned Brooklyn a couple times, so unsure of what borough they might be in, uh, but it's in a New York City location, and there seems to be a longtime career at a law firm, about 20 years plus. The story is taking place in the 70s. I don't believe we have a defined year. Um, I want to say mid-70s. And uh, David says he's been at this law firm for 20 plus years. And so at the beginning of the story, he's attending this men's story group, very much like any sort of men's club or country club, billiard room. It's uh, seemingly quite secretive. Um, and he's been attending at the start of this novella for a few years since he was first invited by his boss and club leader, George Waterhouse. And as I mentioned, this story has three acts. The first 25 pages of this novella is called The Club, just The Club. And then the second dozen or so pages is the actual breathing method story. And then the last chunk is The Club again. So in a way, this novella feels like a sandwich a little bit, and uh, that's one of the cool parts I enjoy. But with only one tail in the middle, I actually think more tails could have been added to it. Because um, we have the club as sort of our, <laughs> our beginning um, little bread slices there, and perhaps in addition to the breathing method, we could get two more weird ones that could be our lettuce and tomato, perhaps. Um, but looking at this story as only 63 pages, it's really cool, very enjoyable, lots of mystery and intrigue described, but I want more. This novella feels a little unfinished, and there's definitely room to add more tales or to expand the club story ends. But the structure of the story is really interesting in that King just didn't drop this breathing method tale, which he could have because it operates completely solo. You could absolutely pull it from the root right in the middle and it could be its own short, creepy freak out. But he sandwiches it between these two narratives having to do with a mysterious men's reading club, well not a reading club, um, a men's storytelling club in New York City. And so it's encompassed by those things. And I wonder if we just had one or two more tales inside, if it would have felt a little more rounded out. More of a um, enjoyable sandwich, I guess. It's a little bit, we need some more. We need some condiments. We need some, you know, something in there other than <laughs> uh, bread, meat, bread. 
Um, but I do enjoy the narrative structure and the tale that we do have in the middle leads me to my second observation of this novella, which is old school macabre. So, uh, in the breathing method, this is specifically concerning the breathing method, guys. Um, the way that tale starts is we learn of a man who is a regular attendee of the Mystery Story Club. His name is Elwyn McCarran. He is almost 80 years old, and he tells us he was born in the year 1900. He went to World War One, and he used to be a doctor. And I guess he's still a doctor, but he hasn't been practicing in a while. And his tale is one that begins in the year 1926. He was home from the war and delivering a lot of babies, and he meets a woman, young woman, named Sandra Stansfield. And Sandra is lovely and young and bright and uh, just all the pictures of youth, but she got in a bit of trouble, uh, bless her heart. She was romanced and wined and dined and ended up pregnant with the guy running out on her and she is an unmarried woman. and. Unfortunately, in that time period, uh, immensely frowned upon. That was, you know, terrible for a woman. Just the worst stroke of luck. So what I like about Sandra is she's pretty determined and very bold, and she understands the stigma she's got stacked against her, but she faces it head on and wants to do all the right things in her pregnancy, wants to be healthy, wants to do it right, and she says to Dr. McCarran, if you don't want to help me because I don't have a husband, then tell me now so I can find someone else. And I loved that. She was such a spitfire and so feisty and lively and that attitude is what really makes McCarran enjoy her like he is instantly attracted to her not in a sexual way but more of an admiring way he he finds her just fascinating and uh, cool and so she's just absolutely not your typical uh, demure damsel of the day. He's he's very impressed. So Sandra's baby is due around Christmas and it's uh, taking place in New York City of course and uh, well Okay, folks, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna set the scene for you and you're probably gonna guess what goes down So what happens to Sandra is she goes into labor? Uh, right around Christmas and of course it's snowing boatloads in New York City and she takes a taxi to the hospital and the streets are very snowy in an old taxi. What do you guys think happened? <laughs> so you know what happens. You do know what happens, but it gets so much darker, my friends. Oh my God. And then uh, the horror elements get ramped up to level 11. So I was debating on whether or not I should tell you guys all the things but as much as I want to, I'm going to pump the brakes on this one because I would like you guys to read this one and experience it for yourself because there is something about the description of what goes down, guys. Oh my god, it's very alien, very alien, and it's very unsettling. 
Um, scary kind of depends on your tolerance level, but let's just say Sandra has her baby even in death. So she, Sandra, has that baby. Uh, I know that might be upsettingly cryptic, but the actual description of this very gory, very wild and shocking scene was made 10 times more intense based on what I saw in my head. It's been uh, almost three days since I've read the story and I'm still, still hearing the sights and sounds my imagination conjured up and oh, it's eerie. It's just, I can't, all I could say is yikes. Like, <laughs> it, it gives me chills. And I don't want you to miss that, guys. I don't want to ruin that for you by giving you my version of what goes down. I would like you guys to experience it for yourself because the images you will conjure in your own mind will, uh, you know, they're going to be moderately different from mine. And I, I think that the imaginative power of this one is where that strong punch is. So, uh, yeah, uh, be forewarned, listeners, if you are triggered by any content with new mothers or vulnerable children, please be aware. Um, I will say this, the baby is okay. So don't worry about little glowworm, little baby is going to be okay. So if that's something that's like, oh my god, I can't handle it if anything happens to a child, totally understandable, totally get that. Um, if it helps, the baby's okay. So just, I, hopefully that doesn't ruin anything too, too much, but it's still horrifying. It's still horrifying, so I think you'll be okay, and... Um, I, for me, I think the breathing method, this tiny dozen or so pages, was so effective visually and so old school in its delivery, you know, it's it's got that telltale heart kind of gut punch. Um, I, it's unforgettable. It really is. I really think that I'll remember this one forever. And I've heard the breathing method mentioned quite a bit in King's world, in the King podcast world, in uh, other bloggers, and it sounds like it might be a polarizing one. So I, I think some people really love it. Some people might be, you know, on the fence. I think there's a lot to love here, but I also understand it's disturbing. It's disturbing. It definitely is taking subject matter of um, women and children and kind of exploiting that a little bit. But it's also, I mean, if you are a horror fiction fan, you gotta read this one. This one's just pretty essential. Uh, so the actual breathing method tale um, is the most intriguing, of course, but the club sections of our first and third act um, are also incredibly intriguing. So the sandwich of this novella um, is 
working for me immensely but as I said previously guys I am salivating for more there seems to be a bit of a sci-fi fantasy tilt at the end of the story where King is asking some big questions of the reader so David seems to come to the conclusion that the house he's participating in all of these readings with it's very mysterious and if you guys remember from the very first part of the coverage in episode one the the preface to this novella collection is that phrase it is the tale not he who tells it that phrase is inscribed on the hearth in this giant library with a roaring fire and lots of strange books in it and so david starts to put two and two together over the years and um basically realizes this entire residence is not from Earth. Like, um, he is connecting some dots that this place is from another place. And so, I'm asking all of you guys, is this a Dark Tower thing? Uh, did I miss a huge Dark Tower hint somewhere? Is George Waterhouse someone in the Dark Tower multiverse? So I am not sure, friends. So my Dark Tower fans out there, please help me. You're my only hope. Because usually anytime I get a little inkling or spidey sense where King is hinting to other worlds than these, uh, I'm like, oh my god, this is a Dark Tower. I, I missed something. What did I miss? Um, who's in the universe? So... I, I hope to find out for myself soon enough. Uh, I promise all of you the gunslinger is happening January 2021. We're getting started. But um, I is this a dark tower thing or are we okay? <laughs> so um, I was noticing that the first and third are sort of hamburger bun sections of this novella. King starts to kind of drop a huge reveal of this place that David is regularly attending has books published that don't exist anywhere in any sort of publishing company in in the world and there are authors and titles and poets and he there's rooms where there are strange sounds and so he really sort of gets the vibe that he's like uh, going into an alternate universe when he steps inside this hearth which is so genius guys that just makes me start salivating for all kinds of greatness and if you are a Neil Gaiman fan this also has the fragrance of Neil Gaiman. He does lots of stuff with uh, old school horror fiction as well as um, mythology. And this this feels, I, I got a Neil Gaiman vibe uh, just a little bit. But there, those are the two areas uh, I have for the breathing method. I did want to read a quick chunk of text to indicate this really old school style of narration, as well as the vibe that is super steeped in Poe and Lovecraft. So this is a little sample of the introduction to the breathing method in which Mr. McCarran is setting the scene for his fellow listeners in front of the hearth. This is on page 481. Birth itself, gentlemen, is a horrid thing to many. 
It is the fashion now that fathers should be present at the birth of their children. And while this fashion has served to inflict many men with a guilt which I feel they may not deserve, it is a guilt which some women use knowingly and with an almost prescient cruelty, it seems by and large to be a healthful, salubrious thing. Yet I have seen men leave the delivery room white and tottering, and I have seen them swoon like girls, overcome by the cries and the blood. I remember one father who held up just fine, only to begin screaming hysterically as his perfectly healthy son pushed its way into the world. The infant's eyes were open, it gave the impression of looking around, and then its eyes settled on the father. Birth is wonderful, gentlemen, but I have never found it beautiful, not by any stretch of the imagination. I believe it is too brutal to be beautiful. A woman's womb is like an engine. With conception, that engine is turned on. At first, it barely idles. But as the creative cycle nears the climax of birth, that engine revs up and up and up. Its idling whisper becomes a steady running hum, and then a rumble, and finally a bellowing, frightening roar. Once that engine has been turned on, every mother-to-be understands that her life is in check. Either she will bring the baby forth, and the engine will shut down again, or that engine will pound louder and harder and faster until it explodes, killing her in blood and pain. So that's uh, the vibe, guys. <laughs> so, um, starts off with a bang and uh, is thoroughly creepy throughout. But I do like how it gives us, just steeps us right in it. So, uh, to recap, we have my the narrative structure. So when you guys read The Breathing Method, let me know what you think. Uh, maybe it is okay, just uh, bread, meat, bread. <laughs> or if we maybe need some lettuce and tomato in there with some additional tails. And then number two, the old school macabre. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, guys. Be forewarned, it's moderately unsettling with its subject matter if you're triggered by that but uh, I love the old-school vibe we got going here especially the narrative style and the fact that it takes place in the 20s and uh, yeah it's it's old-school disturbing um, very visual and nightmarish and I will never forget it my friends I'm never going to forget the images that King put into my mind so uh, I'm okay with it I'm actually okay there there are worse things in the game universe so I don't mind it but this one is unforgettable so as I mentioned, I do feel the breathing method in general, all three acts could be longer. Um, I'm really salivating for more concerning the club that Steve has set up. We have two chapters absolutely devoted to it and the fact that he's really toying with the whole larger than life, mysterious, otherworldly thing and then he just pulls the plug on the reader right when we're getting into it. So I'll ask again I think if we just had two more spooky tales the sandwich would round out nicely and maybe if we did have two more tales he could leave the club a mystery and we wouldn't really have to explore it further we could just kind of let that go and uh, because we would mostly be focused on the crazy vivid tales told at this mysterious house so either expand the club sections 
or give us more tails. Those are the options I'm suggesting, but I really enjoyed the breathing method and I was definitely hungry for more. So let's sort of uh, hunker down around the fire and I'm gonna give you my final thoughts on different seasons. So overall, my friends, Different Seasons is, oh man, it's such a great collection of rich writing. And I love the theme. Not only do we have different seasons in a calendar year, but all of these stories are different seasons in time. We are all over the 20th century with these stories. With Shawshank, we've got the early 50s. With Winter's Tale, we're in the 1920s. Uh, Apt Pupil explores that bicentennial mid-70s vibe, and then Stand By Me takes place in 1960. And not only do we have, you know, those seasons in time, we have different seasons in life. Uh, various ages and stages, birth, death, adolescence, middle age, old age, the different seasons that encompass our human journey. And so there's several deep themes in this collection. They're very introspective and it, it makes total, it fits perfectly because this is a deep collection, guys. We have some powerhouses in this collection, and we have King writing in top form, guys. Top form. Uh, I keep revisiting what he said in the afterword here because I also think it's so fascinating that we can connect when these stories were written with the previous novels that were released. So I really enjoy that he mentions finishing these stories in, com in connection. And I, I don't know if it we can apply it to all the stories in different seasons, but I feel like maybe the spirit of the early novels maybe fed the ground for a different crop. And I like the similarities. Um, I mentioned the preciousness of the dead zone uh, earlier and the tragedy of Johnny Smith, who's our main character. And Shawshank was written right after the dead zone. And we've got this beautiful, incredible drenched in hope story and I I love the fact that they're kind of linked just a little bit and so what do you guys think about that I know that Dead Zone has a lot of fans out there so what do you think kind of knowing that maybe Johnny's tragic story bled into Shawshank's creation maybe so I I like I like uh, mulling on that one apt pupil this one seems perfect um, because this one seems to have been written in Boulder after King finished The Shining. And The Shining is debated as one of the best and most frightening novels in King's anthology. But the evil that embodies Jack Torrance, uh, oh my gosh. So for those of you who haven't read it, Jack Torrance is the Jack Nicholson character. Um, he is the father and the... Oh, this poor man just gets a very sort of slimy and disturbingly evil possession um, while dwelling inside of the Overlook Hotel. It overtakes him and I feel that same kind of possession and parasitic infestation is what happens to the character of Todd. 
um, Todd Bowden gets slowly overtaken by this evil uh, by being in consistent company with a equally evil uh, old Nazi Kurt DeSander. But on the other hand, and this is why I do really appreciate Apt Pupil, when you closely read the story, I think evil was in Todd to begin with and asks that really big question of if it was in him all the time, it was kind of just brought to fruition with the heavy nudges from his frequent interactions with Kurt DeSander. So there's a lot to appreciate with Apt Pupil. It's definitely one to think about in terms of, you know, are we born bad and it's just nudged in the right place? Or is somebody like the season in which it was written suggest corrupted? Can someone be corrupted that dramatically? All good stuff. Um, but the body feels like it has its roots in Carrie. Um, and I probably shouldn't say this because I haven't read Carrie yet. I'm totally going to. I can't wait. But I do know that with Carrie, it's a somber ending. And I know it's exploring that high school vibe of someone who is awkward and bullied and, you know, really marginalized. But Steve says he wrote the body after Salem's lot. So maybe it doesn't really translate to all the stories because... Um, Salem's Lot is very unique uh, when you pair it right next to the body, but not sure. I, I get maybe a Carrie vibe could have echoed into the body, not sure, but the body most definitely is the seedlings and sproutlings for 1986's It. So that I that is wholeheartedly what I believe. I, I think that um, if you are a fan of It and you haven't read the body yet, please do so ASAP. So the breathing method was written right after Firestarter. So I think that um, that one makes a little more sense for sure, especially when we have little Charlie as a youth with immense power. Um, so I can see um, that might correlate just a little bit. It's a stretch. I know it's a stretch. They could absolutely just be independent incarnations, but I enjoy fictionalizing that maybe the previous novels sort of created these novellas in a way, but overall, my friends, this collection is tremendous and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading it. We have large bricks of gold throughout this collection and such an enjoyable reading experience and I love the theme. I really love the theme in which he wove all of these together. Hope springs eternal, summer of corruption, fall from grace, and a winter's tale. It's simple but very effective and for something written over 30 years ago, actually almost you know, we're getting close to 40. It's lasting and enduring because we have such good writing. Oh my god. So I recommend this collection to anyone, especially if you're a first-time King reader. If you're a first-timer and you're willing to just dive in and uh, really especially if you're one of my grad school friends. If you are um, someone who spends their time up to their nose in very, uh, in the literary fiction world, um, come take a, a smoke break with me <laughs> and, and read different seasons because you are going to be 
delighted and thoroughly enthralled by the beauty of this work. However, I can't stress this enough, if you are in a delicate state, my friends, let's skip at pupil for just a little bit. It's a dark trek down the abyss of human evil, and it might be a bit much right now. Um, however, if that's your cup of tea and you're into that kind of thing and you haven't read it, give it a go to each their own. There is lots to appreciate psychologically, so if you want a little bit of a disturbing Rubik's Cube in your mind for a little bit, like 200 pages, uh, I recommend. We have come to the reveal of my favorite story in this collection, although please, dear listener, know that I love and have an immense appreciation for all the stories. We have a tie for first place, and I'm pretty sure you guys know which ones uh, they are. But tied for first is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and the body. Uh, They both stole my heart, they both made me cry, they both just opened me up in different ways, but it was the same kind of filleting of my soul, so to speak. We have gorgeous storytelling, unforgettably powerful pages, so they're both number one. Sorry, not sorry. I just, I stand by that fact. I cannot choose between them. They are both number one. The fact that I have two number ones in this collection should indicate what a powerhouse this book is. So incredible. I adore these stories. I'm so grateful to Mr. King for giving us these stories that are really integral, truly, to the great works of literature. I said it in with Shawshank, I think it's one of the greats of all time, my friends. I think it's up there. And what I also really love is these stories, specifically Shawshank and the Body, have been accessed by a lot of people in both the movies and the novellas, and I hope they've helped people connect and feel and get in touch with hope and friendship and their own healing and all the mushy stuff, because they have the power to do that. These these stories are so great and they both are awarded the gold medal for me and then the breathing method will take silver and apt pupil with the bronze i did enjoy apt pupil guys i promise i did um i i did i promise it's just uh uh the subject matter just sank me low real low uh hit me hard in a bad way in uh in not the good way and therefore for me apt pupil is a little bit of a speed bump in this collection i would actually read it last (laughs) if you're gonna do the story actually no i take that back don't read it last because you don't want to end this collection on apt pupil no that's a terrible idea um just read it in the order that you want but uh if you want just skip it maybe read it when you when you want to when you feel really nihilistic and you feel really like all hope is lost and which might be you know what everybody's feeling right now i'm not sure but I do appreciate Apt Pupil. I give it a nod to its incredibly dark and disturbing nature, so no judgments to it. But as a person on the planet right now, it's a bit much. Um, maybe in time it will become less so, but I don't know. It's pretty effed up. <laughs> and um, I would love to hear what you guys think about it, and maybe you can give me some uh, things I missed that might have me look at it in a new way. But that is about all I have for you guys. 
concerning this tremendously wonderful four novella collection. Thank you guys for hanging out with me in both parts. If you are a fan of The Year of Underrated Stephen King and you haven't already, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give me a quick five-star rating as that would help us find more King readers down the road. And overall, if you have any thoughts, ideas, opinions, suggestions to share, please uh, send us an email at underratedsk at gmail or you can find us on any of the socials of Instagram, Twitter, where they're hanging out and trying to make some friends, and we would love to connect and talk King books with you. So coming up next week and throughout the month of October, this podcast wants to have some Halloween fun with all of you due to the fact that here in the States, as soon as it's September 1st, it's officially Halloween prep. It's <laughs> Halloween starts September 1st here in the States, but but also, because Halloween is most likely going to be this year more subdued, a more muted affair, we would like to have as much fun with you guys as we can and celebrate the season. So next week, we've got some fun Stephen King trivia coming up, as well as some favorite horror movie countdowns and rankings. And in the next two weeks, please join me for 2013's Dr. Sleep. I've been wanting to come Cover that one for a while and we're gonna go in guns blazing. So Dr. Sleep is one of my two spooky book picks for the month of October. I will reveal the second one in the next few weeks. But thank you guys so, so much for joining me. I appreciate you. Stay safe. Take care. Say hi whenever and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.